to see me, church. Thanks, John. The idea is to love and to live like Jesus. And uh, for the past couple years, I've been doing a series called Jesus Worth Following. And uh, we break it up, though I don't always do it. We've actually not been uh, doing the series for the past couple of months. Uh, but today I want to jump back into the series and kind of get back into it. It's been a great study of the book of Mark and just following Jesus through the pages of the book of Mark and talking about the different places he went and what happened there. And I don't expect you to remember this because it's been a couple of months, but the last time we did a lesson on Jesus worth following, we talked about the rich young ruler. Some of you may know who that is or maybe remember. And uh, we talked about that it was hard for this man to follow Jesus, to give up what he had because he was so invested in the life that he was currently living. And it's really difficult for anyone to want to go from one thing that they're invested in to let that go and to embrace Jesus. Today, I want to talk about that Jesus's way is not always what you think. And hopefully, uh, by, by look, looking at that, it'll help us make that transition. It'll help, it help that transition become easier. And by the way, that transition is an ongoing thing. As Christians, we are continually choosing to follow Jesus and to, to invest in him and, and to not invest in other pursuits. That's just the reality of the Christian life. It's an ongoing thing. And so hopefully today, I can, we, can, we can look at Jesus in this next text. By no means am I saying, thus saith the Lord, and this is the way it is. It really is more of a conversation. It really is more of a thinking through the passage. And I believe that if we do that, we'll see something in him that's unexpected. That might be a surprise. And, and I don't know about you, but I like surprises. And I like when surprises make me want to follow Jesus. They, they make me want to draw closer to him. And so I hope that's what happens today in the lesson. So I did something inappropriate. There it is. Okay, so <clears throat> there was this guy, homeless guy, and uh, he went into a restaurant, okay, and uh, sat down at a table. And the, I don't know what's happening here. Our, our screen is messing up. Sorry about that. Okay, well, we'll get it fixed. So he went in uh, to a restaurant, sat down at the table, and uh, wanted to order some food. The waiter came over and he asked for some food and the waiter said, no way, I'm not, I'm not serving you. He said, I, I, you're homeless, I can tell you have no money. So there's no way you can pay for it. And the guy says, well, that's true, but I'll tell you what, I'll make you a deal. If I can surprise you with something that you've never seen before, if I can do something that will blow your mind, would you, would you buy me my, my lunch? And the waiter thought about it for a minute. He said, you know what, sure, let's try it. So the homeless man reached into his jacket and he pulled out a hamster. And he put the hamster on the table and it ran across the table on the floor, across the restaurant to a piano, and it started playing show tunes on the piano. And now the, the hamster was good. That's what was so surprising. I mean, the hamster really knew how to play the song. The waiter said, well, that is something I have never seen before. That's amazing. What do you have? So the guy orders his lunch. He gets done eating and he's still hungry. So he calls the waiter over and he says, hey, uh, I'm still hungry. I want to order something else. And the waiter said, well, listen, no money, no miracle, no service. So the guy says, okay, well, what can we do the same deal as before? I have something that might surprise you. And the, the waiter said, okay, first one was pretty good. Let's, let's try this one. So the guy reaches into his pocket and he pulls out a frog. 
he puts the frog on the table, and the frog starts singing the show tunes that the hamster's playing on the piano. And the frog is good. Well, just then, there was a guy in the restaurant who was watching this happen. He runs over, he takes all the money he has in his wallet, and he says, I'll give you $300 for that frog right now. And the homeless person said, okay, go. He threw the money down, the guy grabbed the frog and ran out with the frog. Well, the waiter said, what are you doing? Why would you sell the frog for $300? That's a singing frog. That frog's got to be worth millions. And the guy sat there and he said, no, don't worry about it. The hamster's a ventriloquist. <laughs> you know, sometimes things aren't always as they seem. And that's the way it is with Jesus. He isn't always the way he seems. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. And we pray for your spirit to be with us. Please speak to us through your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. You can look on the screen and read along if you'd like. It says, they were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, to the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem. This is their third journey to Jerusalem for Passover. They had been there several times before. But every year, all Jewish men would go to Jerusalem, and they would worship for Passover. And that's what we're reading here. And this actually is the third time and the last time that Jesus and his disciples were going to, be, to end up in the city. Now, Jesus knew that. The disciples didn't know they had left the area known as Perea, you can see our map there, and they're heading on their way to the city of Jerusalem. You know, records of the city of Jerusalem go back some 6,000 years. There's evidence of people living in that area. Eventually, it became a stronghold of, what the, of the people known as the Jebusites. About 3,000 years ago, King David conquered the city and the Jebusites, and he made Jerusalem the capital of the Jewish nation. It, it survived for some 400 years until it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who destroyed the temple and the city and wiped it out and deported all the people. But his kingdom was replaced by the Persian Empire, who after about 70 years allowed the Israelites to return to their homeland and rebuild the city and the temple. It survived for a few hundred years and then Alexander the Great rose up and conquered the, the, the known world and expanded his empire, including the city of Jerusalem. And so it was under Greek control for a few hundred years. And then after Alexander died, it was his kingdom was divided into four parts and two of the parts kept fighting over the city of Jerusalem in that area. And so it changed hands and there was lots of intrigues and conflicts and turmoil and, and, and problems that happened. But eventually, the sons of a Jewish priest named the Maccabees were able to liberate the city of Jerusalem and return it to, the, to Jewish control. That was around 164 B.C. That only lasted about 100 years because in 64 B.C., Pompey, the Roman general, came in, defeated the, the, the land and conquered the city and the area known as Judea and, and Palestine. And he appointed a guy named Herod to be king over the area. 
Herod was also called Herod the Great, not because he was a great guy, but because he was a great builder. And Herod rebuilt the city, the temple, to, to a splendor that it had never been before. I mean, really, the temple was considered one of the, ancient, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was so magnificent. After Herod died, one of his sons tried to govern the area, but he was terrible, so the Romans got tired of that. They kicked him out, and they basically appointed military governors to govern the area. And, and there were many, uh, uh, several of them, th through the life of Christ. At this time, the governor's name was Pilate. We've all heard of him. And he was governor over the city, uh, over the region of Judea, and, and the area including the city of Jerusalem. He was the, govern the, the Roman governor. Now, the Romans weren't the only ones who exerted influence at the time of Christ over this area. There were several sects within the Jewish faith that were extremely influential. The first one was the Sadducees. They were Sadducee because they didn't believe in the resurrection. <laughs> the Sadducees were allies of Rome. They, they were Jews who allied themselves with Rome, and so they really kind of maintained the political power in the region among the Jewish people. Very influential. There weren't many of them, though, but they were very influential. Next to them were the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were popular. They were sort of the, 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 the social conservatives of the day. And the area and the people were mostly socially conservative. And so the Pharisees were, were sort of their heroes, very righteous, very pious people. In addition to the Pharisees, there were a group known as the Essenes. Now, we don't see much of them in the Bible because they were kind of like the Amish of the day. So they just kind of disappeared. They went and hid in their own little worlds and lived their own little lives separate from everyone else. And then within these groups, there was also a group known as the Zealots. The zealots were dangerous people. They were revolutionaries who advocated violent overthrow, and whenever they got the chance, they would. They would violently erupt and attack Romans whenever they could, and they were, they were a challenge, but very influential. And then there was a group known as the scribes, the teachers of the law, and their job was to interpret scripture, to, to issue uh, uh, proclamations about the meaning of a passage or how it should be interpreted. When people had questions about the faith, that's who they would talk to. And these were the main sects who were super influential during the time of Jesus. And especially, not only in, in, in the area we call Judea, the city of Jerusalem, but that whole area of Palestine, all the way up into Galilee, they were very influential. And they all had their sort of take and their, 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 their perspective. Now I'm going to ask you a question. <laughs> and I want you to participate. <clears throat> Sorry, I have a little cough. I want you to participate with me if, you, if, you, if you'd be willing. And um, the question is a little unfair, I'll grant you, because it's, it's gonna, I'm kind of coming at this dry. Like, you, you really kind of have no context for the question, but I'm going to see what you know. And there's no wrong answer, okay? But the question is this. The passage tells us that they were on their way to Jerusalem, and I've given you a little bit of history in the background and kind of what's going on in the culture at the time and in the city why do you think some of the people, the disciples were astonished and others who were following were afraid? Why was that their reaction in following Jesus into the city of Jerusalem at this time? Why do you think that was happening? Just out of curiosity, anyone want to take a guess? Yes. So great. Wow. Not knowing the unknown. There's a lot of change going on. Really, really great one. Yes. New. Politics of the day, very uncertain. Yes, Rita. That section of them say that God raised, pardoned from uh, conflict. 
Yes. 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 It's kind of dangerous, right? The city was not the most stable place to be at times. Yes. Anyone else? One more. Yes. Interesting. I really like that. Yeah. Jesus, it, the sense is that he was determined. He was going and, you know, uh, uh, regardless of what might be in front of them, he was on his way. And that was a bit of a, an astonishment to the followers. Really great insights. I absolutely, you, they were all dead on. The way I put it is like this. You had these, these different sects, five or six different sects within Judaism. You had the Romans who already didn't like the Jewish people because they were so un, un, you know, uh, unsettling and constantly revolting and different things. So there was already all this conflict and tension going on. And the truth be told, Jesus, over the past three years, at some point, made every one of those groups mad at him. So at some point, he offended all of them. And yet here he was, resolutely, confidently, heading into Jerusalem, knowing what the outcome of his visit was going to be. He knew that this time he was not coming back out of the city. Right. He even went to great detail. This is actually the most detailed description of his, uh, of his arrest, his trial, his death, and, and, and uh, of what was going to happen to him in the next few days that he gives. And he's giving it as they're walking into the city. Hey, guys, uh, you know, I'm not coming home out of this one, but let's go. And they were astonished. I would be astonished. I think we would all have been astonished and a little afraid that Jesus was so sure and so resolute and so confidently heading into the lion's den. Because that's where he was going. He was on his way into the lion's den, and it wasn't going to end well. You know, one of the things that surprises me, that astonishes me, that catches me off guard about Jesus is that he was willing to walk on the hard road. I think sometimes our modern world, we think of Jesus as so soft and cuddly and, and, and you know, pure and blonde hair and blue eyes and you know, soft and you know, squeezy kind of a guy, carrying a baby lamb on his shoulders and walking around like everything's great. And who could be offended by him? You know what? He offended people to the point that they wanted to kill him. But not only that, he was willing to walk right into the face of that. How many of us have shied away from the uncomfortable conversation at work? I don't, I'm out, I'm out, you know, our whole culture is built on not offending anyone at this time in our world, right? You can't say anything wrong to anybody. We have, what do they call these things? Uh, emotional support animals. Holy crow, what is that? I mean, we are so unwilling to, to walk on the hard road, to take the hard path. But Jesus not just was willing, but he was purposely walking straight into death. Whenever you're willing to walk through hardship, whenever you're willing to face difficulty, whenever you're willing to be disliked, you are walking the road of Jesus. That's surprising to me. Verse 35. 
Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. (coughs) What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right, the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Three different words there. We can, they answered. Jesus said, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So we just got done talking about the intensity of this moment. That there's a, there's a dark cloud here. There's an ominous feeling going on. And they're heading into the city and there's a, some astonishment. There's some, some, some fear And in the middle of this, these two guys, James and John, go, Hey, Jesus, we have a favor. Uh, You mean before I die or after, James and John? What's your your request here? Oh, hey, we want to sit at your right and left. We want to be your two favorite guys in your new kingdom. What? What? I mean, when when you read this and you think about the setting and the scene and the context, I can't think of a more ridiculous request that could have been asked. It's it's as if they had no idea what was coming and where he was going. How did they miss it? Didn't he just get done explaining that he would go into Jerusalem, he would be handed over to the Gentiles, he would be tried, he would be crucified? Didn't he just get done telling them all that? And here they are going, hey, we're with you, but we want to be your two best guys. What do you think would prompt them to ask that question? Yeah. Yeah, they probably thought that he was going to go fight a battle and overthrow the government. Okay, what else? Any other thoughts? Yeah, that, oh yeah, one more. Well, it's just what the, it's the system that they're used to, right? Yes. Yes, so, so, so true. Both, both those answers are so great. They come from an environment where, I mean, Jerusalem had been fought over for thousands of years. It had changed hands. It, it had been taken and retaken some 44 times in its history. Destroyed completely two different occasions. Battles were fought over at some 53 different times. I mean, this is the environment. This is the world they live in, and this is how it works. You go in, you fight a battle, you take over. And hey, man, we want to be your captains. We want to be on the right and the left. But didn't he just say he was going to die? Didn't he just say he was not going in there to fight? In fact, he was going to go in there. He was going to get arrested. He was going to get tried. He went through details. I'm going to get arrested. I'm going to get tried. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be whipped, and I'm going to be crucified. And they didn't hear that. In fact, I won't go there, but in Luke, Luke gives us the, another gospel, gives us the exact same story, and Luke actually spells it out for us. They didn't understand what he meant. Now, when someone doesn't understand you, what is your first reaction? Yeah. You want to re-explain yourself? What, what, what was it? I, Say it again louder, right? I mean, that's my reaction. I'm going to say it again louder. You're an idiot. You're an idiot. Sorry. 
Especially when it's like, hey, this is my life here. We're talking about me dying and you guys are all vying for position. How ridiculously stupid can you guys be? Does Jesus respond to them that way? Does he rebuke the snot out of them? Does he just light them up? No. He asks them the question, do you think you can do what I'm doing? Do you think you can go through what I'm going through? When he uses the word baptized there three different times, he's not making a comment about the act of baptism. What he's, what he's describing is really a, a way of saying, do you think you can handle it? So here they are, these young guys, completely oblivious, totally brash. They ask a stupid, ridiculous question. And instead of lighting them up and chewing them out and blasting them, he just responds with a question, well, do you guys think you can handle it? And of course, as dumb as they are, they go, yeah, we can handle it. <laughs> yeah, okay, right, like you can handle it, okay. And Jesus said, well, guess what? You are going to have to handle it because it's going to happen. You are going to go through the same process I'm about to go through. You're going to go through the same difficulty, the same trials, persecutions, hardships, even death that I'm about to go through. You will. But hey, I, I'm not, it's not my job to give you titles in my kingdom. That's, that's not what this is about. What jumps out at me is that Jesus seemed to go easy on them. Now, in, in previous accounts, in previous lessons, we saw Jesus rebuke them and chew them out and, and give them a hard time. But in this situation, in this very intense, very emotional, very uh, 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 ominous scenario, Jesus isn't harsh with them. He isn't tough on them. He's actually incredibly gentle. Boy, do I appreciate the gentleness of God. I think it's one of those qualities we just forget about. We don't think of God as gentle. We think sometimes of him as always out there to judge us and to be harsh and to, to you know, judge us and confirm right, right or wrong in our lives. But in this case, when, 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 when they need it the most, I should say when they deserved it the least, he gave them gentleness. He responded with kindness and gentleness. One of those qualities that we just overlook. Years ago, I'm going to share a, just a very personal story. It may not mean anything to you, but it, it's very personal to me. Because it was probably the most ridiculous, uh, how do I say this? It was probably one of the worst moments of my adult life. Where I behaved unbelievably inappropriately. And I was a Christian and a minister. So I have that going for me. <laughs> but a friend of mine asked him how to, to teach him to drive a stick, and I was trying to show him. And he was having a hard time getting the coordination down. And I don't know what happened, but I lost it. I started yelling at him. I started belittling him. I, I, I couldn't stop myself. And, and I, I don't know what happened. For several minutes there, I just went off. I don't know why. I don't, I, I, I'm embarrassed to tell you the story. It was utterly ridiculous and upsetting and wrong of me to do that. It was, it was, it was gross. But I couldn't stop. I just lost it. And he sat there quietly the whole time. And, and finally, after several minutes of me, just I finally got my mind under control and I started apologizing. I'm like, I can't. I don't know what I was doing, bro. I'm so sorry. And, and he was so gentle. He didn't call other ministers and say, hey, we need to talk to this guy. We need to have a meeting. He didn't tell anyone else. 
He didn't, he didn't go off on me and say, I can't believe you. He didn't light me up at all. He just said, it's okay, bro. It's okay. I forgive you. And I, 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 to this day, I apologize to him. It's been like 10 years. I cannot live that down. It wasn't John, but I cannot live that down. I can't live it down. He actually had to ask me to stop apologizing. He did. He asked me, please. That was the only time he got firm. Please stop apologizing. I hope you appreciate the gentleness of our Lord. The truth is, we are messes all the time. And he has forgiven and forgotten and been gracious and patient with us more than we will ever know and ever deserve. He by far overlooks our shortcomings and our weaknesses and our failures and our mistakes and our purposely wrong actions all the time. Now we think God's judging me because we have a bad day. God's out to get me. I didn't get my job or this girl doesn't like me or the, the sky is not blue. God's out to get me, you know. And, and even if he was, even if that moment was true, it's one of 100,000 that he ignored. I mean, it's one out of 100,000 that he ignored. Could you imagine if God actually sat down and said, okay, let's just tell you who you really are and exactly what you look like right now. Boy, I hope we appreciate the gentleness of Jesus. It's, it's unexpected, isn't it? He's going in as their Messiah, their king, and he's doing the opposite of what kings for centuries and still do today. He's doing the opposite. He's gentle. He's gracious. He's kind. He's forgiving. It's... It's surprising, isn't it? It's not what you expect. So Jesus walked the hard road, but his way was gentle. Verse 41, when the 10 heard about this, the 10 being the other, there was 12 apostles or disciples at this point. The two made the request that the other 10 heard. It says they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as Rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. You know, I wish I could tell you that the other ten were indignant because they were so mature. And they saw James and John's immaturity here, and they, they really felt like James and John needed a good talking to. But the truth is, they were indignant because they were just as immature. What well, 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 those guys asked? I mean, that, that's my seat. How dare them? I, well, you, you, I'm Peter. I'm the head of the guys here. I mean, don't they know this? I'm Peter. How dare you, James and John? That's really what was going on. And you know what's interesting here is when that happens, when people become judgmental of each other, it really, it really... Uh, endangers the love 
And so you see Jesus calls a time out and he pulls him in and he says, whoa, 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 I need to stop this right now <laughs> because this little arrogant, judgmental thing that's about to break out is not good. That's what the Gentiles do. The Gentiles lord over each other. They want to sit in rule and judgment of each other. Not so with you. That's not what we're going to do here. We're not going to go down that road. Has anybody ever heard this phrase? People who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. <laughs> what does that phrase mean? Yes. Yep. Don't do to others as you would want them. Do to others as you'd want them to do to you. What else? Anybody else? Yes. We live in a glass house. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we all, we all have our faults. Who are we to throw stones? I mean, when you throw a stone in a glass house, you're going to break a window. And, and the, the point here is it's, it's unbelievably hypocritical to start judging each other. Think about it for a minute. Honestly, think about it for a minute. How ridiculous is it that we have the ability, that we, we would even think of judging each other? I mean, that's, at the end of the day, I put myself above my friend. I thought I was better, and I talked down to him, and I was inappropriate and rude to him, trying to help him do something he wasn't good at. That's wrong. Right. Who am I? Do I not have faults that he could easily point out? Who are you when you judge someone else? You, you, you get mad at your brother or sister, your parents, your, your kids, your neighbors, your friends. We, and, and it all boils down to this, this feeling that we somehow know better or we're somehow above the other person. And therefore, we feel indignant and we have the right to be able to tell them all that's wrong with them. Not so with followers of Christ. Not so with you. You know, one of the saddest realities, and it is a reality, it's true of our church, it's true of Christianity in general, but people outside of Christianity see us as judgmental. They really do. And I know in your heart, in my heart, I don't mean to be judgmental, but, but we do give them reason from time to time to think that. I was trying to sell a car just a couple days ago, and the woman came to look at it, and we took a test drive, and she was talking about herself, very nice lady, but she was talking about herself. And she, she expressed that she was uh, basically non, not a believer and then asked me what I do. <laughs> and I said, oh, I'm a minister. And she said, oh, you don't like hold snakes, do you? Nice. <laughs> that was her impression of me as a Christian, that I, I hold snakes. I was like, believe me, I was trying to think of a good comeback. Praise God, I didn't have one. <clears throat> but there is a weirdness that's out there between us and the world around us. And, and I don't know if we know this, if you figured this out, but if mission love fundamentally is where we're saying go out, that's fundamentally what mission love is about. It's not about let's be in our gang, in our group. It's about let's go get in their gang and in their group. Which means people are going to say some really weird things to us. And we're going to have to be ready 
to not be judgmental. I mean, I could have said something. I won't say. I won't even say it because it's inappropriate. <laughs> Let's just say there was enough evidence in her life that I could have had a retort. Thank God I didn't think that way at the time. But guys, if we're ever going to be mission love minded, we're going to have to in, in, go out into the world around us and be a part of it. And I think for so long in our church, and I think Christians in general, we have a tendency to be like the Essenes. We want to withdraw or maybe be like the Pharisees. We don't totally withdraw, but we draw lines and we don't let anybody in unless they're just like us. And Jesus never did that. They were always mad at him because he was always hanging out on the other side of the fence and bothered with what he was doing. And I really think in our heart of hearts as Christians and just as individual people, I think if we, and in fact, I'm going to give you a challenge this week. I want you to think about this. I want you to do your best this week. I'm asking this week, do your best to not judge each other with each other. Like let's not judge each, compare each other to each other, but let's do this for one week. Just compare yourself to Jesus. See what might happen during that week and how your attitude, your perspective, how everything might just change if you would just compare yourself to Jesus. Because truth is, he's the only one who can truly judge. He's the only one who is without sin. He's the only one who could throw a stone in a glass house and not break anything. Because there's nothing to break. I know what happens. I was trained to think this way, and I know some of us were. But the spiritual man makes judgments about all things. We know that verse. It's in the Bible. Or, well, we have to make judgments. I mean, we have to decide who's right and who's wrong. Actually, we don't. I don't believe that that passage means that. I do believe that there's right and wrong, and a spiritual man can tell right from wrong. But a spiritual man doesn't decide who's right and who's wrong. That's Jesus' job. And I think he, in this moment, on this walk, into this intense time, heading into Jerusalem, it's just days away before he's going to be executed. Jesus has a powwow here that's one of the most important powwows with his guys he could have had because he was putting the kibosh on judgmentalness, on, on arrogance and pride, and this thing where we try to get ourselves above each other and we try to, we try to compete with each other. And he was saying, none of that. That's got to end, and that's got to end right now. Verse 42, he says, I'm sorry, in 43, he says, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must become your servant. So in, in society, servants have what status? They have the under status, not the over status. James and John wanted the overstatus, and so did the other 12, truth be told, and so do we. But the servant takes the understatus. And so Jesus gives the recipe, be the servant. That's the answer. So Jesus' road was hard, his way was gentle, and it was paved with service. 
I hope everyone has thought about their mission love and what they're going to do to serve the world around them, the people around them. How are they going to get out there and be giving and engage? And I hope it involves some form of service, some form of laying your life down, some form of letting them be better than you. Because that's what Jesus did. Last verse. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Talk about a surprise. The King of Kings, the Son of God, God in flesh, did not come to this world to conquer city after city like man does and enslave its people. He actually came to serve and to pay their ransom. That word ransom in the Greek is the word litron, and it means the price of release. And it is specifically for paying for the freedom of someone else, paying for a slave's freedom. So Jesus is telling them, (coughs) I'm here not to judge. I'm here not to lord over. I'm not here to fill my coffers or or to pad my bank account. I'm not here to gain more territory or fame for myself. What I'm here for is to serve. I'm here to be lower than everyone else, to lay my life down, to be less than you. And in doing so, I'm going to pay your price. I'm not going to take prisoners. I'm going to let them go. I'm going to set them free. Whenever we are willing to face hardship faithfully, to respond to an insult gently, and to put others before ourselves, we are loving and living like Jesus. That's a surprise. And, And in doing so, we are showing people something unexpected about God. Something that they wouldn't have imagined. How cool is that? We get to be these people, these ambassadors, who reveal who Jesus really is to the world, and we get to blow all their preconceived notions right out of the water by acting like him, by loving and living as he did. So like in the joke, the frog wasn't really the singer. He wasn't really what he seemed to be, and neither is Jesus. So let's go show the world that. Say a prayer, and we'll be done. Father, thank you so much for bringing us together this afternoon or morning, and I pray for your presence to be with us. Help us to truly love and live as you did and to walk your way, to face hardship, to turn away anger with gentleness, to respond to insults with gentleness, to serve others and show them what it means to to be really Christ-like. God, I pray that as we have our Super Bowl parties and as we have fun today, that we just, we just can't get it out of our mind what Jesus is calling us to. Help us to really take the challenge this week and to only compare ourselves to him and not each other. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed.